Well, I'm happy to say good morning to you and to our Cedar Lake campus, our HP campus, as we all are kind of together here uh, today in our time of uh, teaching and preaching from God's Word. And today I'm going to begin with a story from my years growing up. This is a story that stands out to me for reasons that you'll uh, know here in a moment. When I was 14 years old, approximately 14, I was a pitcher on the baseball team. And when you're a pitcher, it's important that you practice. And so I decided that I was going to get some practice in. And so I went into our basement family room uh, to practice my pitching. This is the room that my dad had taken umpteen days off from work to finish and to make it nice. The TV was there, other things were there. And I thought, what a perfect place to practice my my baseball pitching. Now, before you think that was a bad idea, it's because you forget one piece of furniture that every home had back in the day. Bean bag. Remember the bean bag? All the cool families had them. Many of you young people are unfamiliar with what a bean bag is, but we had a bean bag. And so I thought, perfect. I'll just throw it into the bean bag. And so that's what I did. I mean, I'm, I'm doing the whole wind up, I'm practicing. And I start, you know, kind of slow, making sure I'm hitting the beanbag. But the more I did it, the more confident I got, and so the more zip I was putting on it. Until one fateful pitch, which inexplicably went high. <laughs> Very high. And it caromed off the wall, right into my dad's beloved 125-gallon fish aquarium. That's the proper response. <laughs> and not only did it carom into the aquarium, it broke a hole about a third of the way up the aquarium. And so I watched this because it went kadoom, kadoom, crack, and then psh, here comes the fire hose out of said aquarium into the family room that my dad had taken many days off from work in order to finish. And I just remember in that moment, I can live it to this day, the moment, the, I had this holy, just this moment, just like all the blood drained out of my head, and I thought to myself, my dad is going to kill me. <laughs> and so off I ran to find mom, I wonder if you can relate to that story. Did you have something growing up that you did, broke, you know, smashed into, ran into with the car? In fact, just so I know that I'm not alone today, I'd like for you to think what that thing is, and let's all say that thing out loud together. You ready? What's the thing for you? One, two, three. Okay, see? Then you know the dread that I'm talking about. When you had to make the call, Share the news. Now, as a dad now, I'm on the other end of this experience. And one of the things that I've noticed about my daughters is that when I discipline them, right after I discipline them, they want to hug me. Now, I would think after disciplining them that they would want to run away. But they want to hug me. 
Why do they want to hug me? Because they want to know that everything is right with dad. And that picture is a, is a, is a reflection of the larger reality between God and humanity, between God and you, friend. All of us want to know that in terms of me and God, the Father in heaven, that we're good, that everything is right. Can we hug? I want to know that everything is good and right again. And this is what the Apostle Paul has been just confronting and addressing, and it resonates in our hearts because as image bearers and as, as human beings made by our creator, heavenly father, God, there is within us this sense that not everything is right. Something's wrong. Something's broken. Our conscience speaks to us and tells us it's not all right. And so Paul has been addressing this in Romans. And we studied this, this part of the passage last time. He said this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And a quick review, when we studied this passage, we, we pulled out four key words that really summarized what Paul is saying here. And those four words were righteousness, sin, justified, and redeemed. Righteousness, that right standing before God. Sin, uh, which is a violation of God's glory. Justification, God declaring us righteous even though we're not and redemption, that, that word from the slave trade, a price that is paid to set a slave free. These four words summarize how God makes a sinner righteous before him. How God makes a sinner right between him and the sinner. And today we continue in this passage with two more words. Okay, two more words. Propitiation and forbearance, propitiation and forbearance. Here's our text this morning. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, this is verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God bless his word to us today as we submit our hearts to it and seek to understand what does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? And embedded in this text is a debate that has really raged for many centuries but continues on today. Here's the debate. Is God angry or not? Is God angry or not? Or is God love, like all love, not angry? Or is he all anger, no love? Or somehow both at the same time? And the word that Romans introduces right from the beginning is the word wrath. 
And the concept of the wrath of God, we saw this in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. God has wrath towards sin and sinners. We saw that, chapter 1, Gentiles under God's wrath. Chapter 2, Jews under God's wrath. You get to the end of, uh, or you get to chapter 3, verse 20, and you're like, we're all going to hell. We're all going to hell. The wrath of God. And this wrath, by the way, we struggle because we see it through the lens of human wrath. The wrath of dad, the wrath of mom, my own, my own wrath. These are human beings who may or may not be in a position to do something about that wrath. Their wrath might be something that you know changes over time. But the wrath of God is much different than human anger. Here, J.I. Packer summarizing God's wrath says this. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So the question for us is, how, if God is angry at sin and sinner, and if I am a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, how do I move from a position of being under the wrath of God to a position of not wrath of God? This is what we want, and you could, in a way, summarize all the religions of the world are trying to provide an answer for how a person goes from judgment and death to some kind of life forever. The ancients, if you, if you, you know, study world religions, you know this, the ancients would offer sacrifices to gods, you know, these, the pantheon of gods, and they would offer money, and they'd put crops, and they would even kill their children, hoping that the god that they were worshiping would somehow, because of this offering, show them favor rather than wrath. Now, in our modern day, we don't do it exactly like that, but in our modern day, the moderns are trying by good works and charitable activities to somehow believe that God likes my good things more than he hates my bad things. That somehow I've, I've merited some kind of favor from God, that me and God are good because I'm a good person. And Paul says to that, Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the what? The glory of God. We all fall short of God's purpose for us, which is to do everything to his glory. We are sinners by nature and by action. We can try to earn his favor, but none of it gets us there. The Bible says that as well. Isaiah 64, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And so again, we, when you understand what Paul is saying and what the Bible is saying and what God was saying, saying in the Garden of Eden, you get to chapter 3, verse 20, and there's no hope. Why? Because if I'm a Gentile, I'm under the wrath of God because God's revealed his will and purpose in the creation around us. If I'm a Jew, I'm under the wrath of God. Yes, I have the law of God, but I don't fulfill the law of God, so therefore I'm under the wrath of God. The Gentile, the Jew, we're all in the same boat, we're all in the Titanic, we're all going down, and there is no hope. And that's why verse 20 
uh, and 21, such a wonderful transition where where Paul announces that now there is a righteousness, a right standing before God that does not come by the law. It doesn't come by my righteous activities. It is apart from the law. It comes rather through faith in Jesus Christ. you're tracking with that, you're thinking to yourself, yes, 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 that's good. Tell me more. How do I do this? How can God declare me righteous? Because if we look in the mirror, what do we know? We are not righteous. How can God declare us righteous? If he does that, he himself is unrighteous. Which brings us to the fifth word of wonder in this passage. This word, propitiation. Again, in verse 25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And I'm going to acknowledge something right now. There's a lot of letters in that word. And many years of pastoring, I know that when there's a lot of letters in a word, there's some people that sort of say, I can't understand that. And yet many men here love words that long or longer, like, Horsepower, (laughs) testosterone, play action pass, it's three words, but you say it fast enough, it's like one word. If you can get those things, you can get propitiation, and it's worth the effort, friend. What is propitiation? The roots of propitiation are in the Old Testament. If you go back in the Old Testament, we find that God established a system of worship between Israel and himself that centered on the tabernacle and the temple. And in the center of those houses of worship, there was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on that Ark of the Covenant, between the wings of the cherubim, there was what was known as the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would kill a goat and they would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat. And that, by God's design, was an atoning, a covering over of the sins of that year, a way of appeasing the wrath of God against the sins of the people. Now, it was temporary. It only lasted one year. But that's the way that God established it. That's why if you have an NIV right now, it translates this word, a sacrifice of atonement. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Now you might say, well, I don't like that. Or I don't think that sounds right to me. Doesn't matter. (laughs) God is the decider of all reality. And God has decided that reality is such that his anger against sin and sinner can be appeased by the death of somebody else. In other words, God allows substitutes. And in the Old Testament, it was lambs and goats and bulls. But they were temporary. They didn't last. And then we are introduced to this wonderful once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made which was, by this text, a propitiating sacrifice, an anger-satisfying sacrifice. It was an atoning sacrifice, not just for the sins of one year, 
but the sins of forever for all those who trust and believe in Christ. Are you with me? Okay. This anger-satisfying, propitiating sacrifice appeases the anger of God. His death was sufficient to appease it forever. See that in the verse. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. God put Jesus forward. The word literally means put on public display. God God went public with the fact that there is a way for a sinner, God's wrath against the sinner, to be appeased. He didn't do it quietly. He went public with it. And this sacrifice is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, you may or may not realize something, but as I'm talking like this, we are actually traversing a very... Uh, hotly debated controversy in our modern day, especially in churches, but it's been around for a very long time. Here's why. Because propitiation infers that God is angry. And there are a lot of people that don't agree, whole denominations of people that don't agree that God is angry at us, that he is angry at sin. And so they come to this verse and this word and they translate it, not propitiation, but expiation. Now, this is another big word, but literally it's what, what it means is that God washes us clean from sin. Okay, he, just, he washes us clean. And there's no necessary anger in that. I mean, every, parents, you know, bathe their children. Now the child thinks it's some sort of You know, this is anger from you that I have to be bathed tonight. But enough about my last night. uh, (laughs) Or some other night often happening in my life. You know, children view that as, you know, injustice or something. But no, I love you. I'm washing you clean. They're comfortable with expiation. God, God power washes us. And we all have a little something-something probably needs to be power-washed. I'm okay with that. But don't say that God is angry at sin. No, 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 we can't have it. It's expiation, it's not propitiation. Because God is love, and God is grace, and God is mercy. And God is benevolent towards us, and he should be, because we are essentially good people. We're good people. So they translated expiation, washed clean. It just sounds better than all this anger and wrath. The problem is, is that's not what the word means. The word means anger, satisfaction. Paul begins the whole book, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so liberal theology and liberal theology-believing churches, they will do all kinds of gymnastics around this because they don't want a God with wrath. Again, they insist that we are good people who sometimes mess up. It's more oopsie-daisies. It's not sin, it's an oopsie-daisy. We're essentially wonderful. And friends, that is why you can go to a liberal church, and we have them in our own community, 
and you'll walk in and you see crosses and they talk about Jesus. They sing some of the same songs that we sing. But when they talk about Jesus and his, and his death, it was an example of love. It was an inspiration. Jesus died to inspire us to be better people. That's liberal theology. There's no, it's not sin, it's not anger and wrath, and there's certainly no hell. Don't even talk to me about hell. We will not call it a propitiation. R.C. Sproul, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. Okay. So, it honestly confuses me because we have some people that seem to sort of flit back and forth between our church and some of these other kinds of churches, and I don't get how you can like both. Like one, you can like one, or you like you can't like both because it is an essentially different truth that we are teaching, believing, and trusting, and celebrating. Now, this last week, my wife Jennifer and I got back from a trip, and uh, a long-awaited and anticipated trip. We went on an English. Reformation study tour with Erwin Lutzer from Moody Church and 38 of our new best friends in the bus. <laughs> and so we went to England, we went to Scotland, and we uh, you know, saw where martyrs were killed, and we saw lots of cathedrals and old castles, and it really was a wonderful uh, trip. Had a great time, learned a lot, thankful that I could go. In fact, I have a picture. We probably, I just thought, a vacation picture, maybe just one vacation picture. I don't know how well you can see that. But there we are in one of these gigantic uh, cathedrals. And, and here, this is a picture of John Knox pulpit. And in the pulpit is actually John Knox. Look at him right there. <laughs> a clean-shaven version of John Knox there. So it was actually... Uh, we initially were not allowed to get in it, but my wife Jennifer sweet-talked the guy in charge. He had no idea who he was dealing with there. <laughs> and into the pulpit I went <laughs> to get my picture. But one of the interesting things about going there is that you have all of these, and these churches are so, the buildings are massive. If you've ever been there, you walk in and you realize they built this like 500 years ago. And it's just, the ceiling is just, it just goes up forever. And you think, how did they do this without cranes and without, you know, motorized tools and then all the rest? It's just, it's just unbelievable. Like, you, $100 million couldn't build these churches. Like, it would just be astronomically expensive now uh, to do it. So you go to these churches and uh, to realize that they are, they're basically museums. They're basically museums. So many churches in England now have been turned into mosques, coffee shops, you know, whatever. They're no longer churches. One, one, we were in one church, and a famous church, massive church. And we asked the pastor, we said, how many, how many people come here on Sundays? And he said in this Scottish accent, he said, we have 30 on the rolls but only 15 that show up on Sundays. 
I practiced that. Was that okay? I, I seriously worked at that. I don't know. It's just fun to be there and hear him talk, honestly. But so sad. Here a church where at one time the Reformation was like a wildfire. People still writing books about what God did. Now, it's just a shell. It's just a museum. What happened? Well, in the Church of England, you don't talk about sin. In the Church of England, you don't talk about propitiation. The death of Jesus was not a satisfying of God's wrath. My dear friends, if sin isn't sin, then God isn't angry. And if God isn't angry, then hell isn't real. And if hell isn't real, then why should I care? Why should I care? And if I don't care, I certainly don't waste a good Sunday morning going to a church to hear how wonderful I am, because I already believe that. And if there is no wrath, then what is the point? But my dear friend, listen, if God is angry, then hell is real. If God is angry, then I, a sinner, am in frightening trouble. If God is angry at me personally, then there is no higher priority than for me to somehow find a way for that anger to be turned away from me. The wrath of God for the sinner is a dreadful reality. And when we understand the wrath of God, it brings an earnestness and a seriousness to our spiritual walk. This is what takes away the sort of shallow, flippant, laughy-ha-ha kind of Christianity. No, this is death serious forever. It is hell forever. Now you talk to me about the glad tidings that there is some way that that eternal wrath against me can be turned to love and life forever. Now I call that good news. I call that a gospel. When I come to understand that God has satisfied that wrath with the death of his son and that I can have this wrath turned forever where he is no longer my judge, but he is my heavenly father forever. Now I call that good news. When I understand, wait, when I understand, as John Stott said, that God, that God gave himself to save us from himself, when I understand that salvation is not me being saved from hell, it is me being saved from God and his wrath forever. Now this gospel and this walk with Jesus and the church and the scriptures and my own holiness of life becomes something that is blood serious. Are you there? Okay, are you there? Do you understand, friend, that apart from Jesus, it is God's wrath for you forever? And I don't say that with any smile. It is just the most earnest truth there is. If for one moment, like if, if, if for one moment, for a quarter of a second, we had just a little glimpse of hell, poo-poo, like that. If for a second we could just realize this wrath and what that is like poured out forever, how that would change the room. 
how we would walk out of here with an entirely different mindset about what is important in life. Now, my dear friend, you don't have to know propitiation to be saved. It's a big word. You have to know Jesus as your Savior to be saved. Okay? You need to have your faith and trust placed in Christ to be saved. And the fruit of that is that the wrath of God is no longer placed upon you. You become an object of mercy forever by the grace of God. Now, there is another verse and another word. Let's take it as a whole, verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Forbearance, our sixth word. You see it here, it's called divine forbearance. And what Paul is doing is he's anticipating the person who's tracking with him, okay? So you're saying that when Jesus died on the cross, it satisfied God's wrath against me. You're saying that when I receive this by faith, that God applies Jesus' death, his atoning death, to me and now his wrath is turned away from me because he poured it out on Jesus. Which, by the way, I skipped this. If you want to understand the wrath of God, you think about his own son hanging on the cross. Why did the sky grow black from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock? Why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that is the wrath of God. You take that away, and you can have every cross in your church that you want. That is not the gospel. Jesus suffered on the cross, not because we're good people. It's because we're sinners. He suffered on the cross because of our sin and God's wrath against our sin. We can't take that away. Back to forbearance. So the person that Paul's addressing here is tracking with him. So you're saying that God applies the atoning work of Jesus to me so I'm not under his wrath. Yes, that's what I'm saying. They say, well, what about all the people that, before Jesus? Like, what about everybody that lived before the cross? What about billions of people that, you know, sinned against God before the cross? Interesting question. What did God do with them? Because it would have been in God's perfect right to simply, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, for him to go, hell, hell forever. And Adam and Eve could not have been in hell saying, God, you did us wrong. No, it was perfect justice. Hell is perfect justice. But what did God do when Adam and Eve sinned against him? He didn't send them to hell right away. What did he do? Well, he made them promises. He says to Eve, there's coming a descendant from you that is going to crush the serpent, crush Satan. He made them clothes, clothes to cover their nakedness and clothes to cover their shame. 
he gave them children. Cain, Abel, Seth. He gave them long life. How could God give them all of these blessings when justice demanded immediate hell? And the answer to that is divine forbearance. Divine forbearance knew that even, knew, knew even then that a descendant of Eve would come someday and would atone for the sin of Eve and Adam eating the fruit of that garden. God knew in that moment that the sins of Abraham and Judah, Abraham and David, Moses, throw in whoever you want, that there was going to become one, there was going to come one, a descendant that would die a propitiating death. A death that would atone for all of those sins. Eve eating from the tree, Abraham taking Hagar, Jacob murdering, David adulterating, and on and on the list goes. God knew that there was a coming sacrifice that would satisfy his anger towards them in their sin. Divine forbearance temporarily overlooked the sin, seeing in the future a death in their place. By the way, it's no different than what he does with us. Do you realize, friend, that the first sin you ever committed, it would have been in God's perfect justice to send you to hell in that moment. Right then, bam, that's it. One sin, bam, to hell you go. But God didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He forbore bore that sin and thousands of other sins that you committed. How? He knew that you were going to believe. And when you sinned, when, when I, I don't know if it was a sin to throw the baseball, was stupid, okay? I could pick a lot of other sins I'd rather not confess right now to you that I did as a teenager and, and all the rest. God knew that there was a point in time in my life that I was going to put my trust in Christ. And when I sinned against him, God looked forward to that day when I would put my faith in Christ, and he looked back to the day when Jesus died on the cross, satisfying his wrath, and in the day of the sin, he forbore the sin, looking forward and looking back. And the result is that we display his righteousness by our salvation. So that God is both just and justifier. He is completely righteous in his judgments against sinners. And he is completely the one that justifies sinners by declaring some righteous by his grace. His sovereign grace. Now friends, the sobering truth is not only does God forbear with the sins of those that who will believe. But he also forbears with the sins of those who will not. God waits. If I draw a Father's Day analogy, when I was growing up, if I, during like the summertime especially, if I did something bad, my mom would punish me. If I did something really bad, my mom would say, wait until your father gets home. There are no worse words in the English language <laughs> than wait until your father gets home. 
because I knew that when my dad came in after a long day of work and he is immediately confronted with my attitude that I gave to his wife, I was going to get it. And the getting it from dad was way worse than the getting it from mom. And so I lived the day with this dread of daddy coming home. And my dear friends, God waits to judge sin. That's what allows people around us to seemingly sin with impunity. Like if you're a teenager today, if you're a Christian, and you're in a school context where all day long people are just taking God's name in vain, and they're, they're all about things that you know God's will isn't for those things, and they seem to be happy, and they seem to have great parties on Friday night, and they seem to, you know, they get good grades and go to good colleges, and you think to yourself, this just doesn't seem fair. Or maybe you're an adult, and you, you have, you know, friends, neighbors, family, and they don't believe what you believe. They could care less about it. They're prospering financially. They're healthy. Their kids go to, you know, all these different things, and you just kind of look at it, and you go, really? Like, I'm following Jesus, and they're not, and that's the way that they get to live, and you could say to yourself, this just doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. God, where's your justice in this world? It's just because daddy hasn't come home yet. Daddy hasn't come home yet. So the question that forbearance asks is the same question that propitiation asks. What about you, friend? The fact that your life seems to be going okay right now, things are sort of okay right now, you might look at that and say, I must be good with God. God is forbearing your sin. Judgment's coming. Hell is real. What about you? What about you? Do you have right standing before God or not? Are you an object of his anger or an object of his wrath? Have you received the saving benefits of Jesus' propitiating work on the cross or not? And if not, why not? Why not? You might say, I got time. Yeah. I walked through all kinds of cemeteries in England, like these old tombstones. Like, you can't even hardly read them anymore. You know, in the granite, just over all the centuries, they've been rubbed off. And just, just see all these cemeteries, and you realize that at one time, they lived like we do. But right now, they are in eternity, like we will be someday, and you will be someday. And you will step into eternity, either an object of his eternal mercy or an object of his eternal wrath. And the only distinction between those two is whether or not Jesus' propitiating death has been applied to your moral account. And if you have not believed, why not believe and receive by faith a firm belief that Jesus died for me. As the old hymn says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And I pray all of us come. May Jesus be praised.